You're listening to the Dismantle Ideas podcast with me, Matt Fremantle, a fellow inquisitive human. Thank you very much for for joining us today. We're going to talk about something that's been on the tip of everyone's tongue for quite some time now, given the way politics seems to be shifting globally and everything that's going on in the world at the moment. So we're going to talk about nationalism and specifically we're going to talk about nationalism during the time of a pandemic. And joining me on today's podcast, we have another amazing brain, uh, someone that I've worked with a few times recently and, and always find his talks and, and articles truly, truly fascinating. Um, it's Dr. Pablo de Orellana, who is a Doctor of International Relations at King's College London. So welcome, Pablo. Thank you very much. You're much too kind as ever, Matt. It's such a pleasure to be here with you again, and I'm very glad we can continue having these discussions um, uh, despite the impossibility of meeting in person and having our talks in person like we're used to. Um, of course. So um, I'm a specialist on nationalism. I research how nationalism um, works as a set of ideas. How do nationalist ideas lead to policies, to specific desires to do certain things, and so on and so forth? Um, and I look at the history of nationalist ideas in the last 200 years, from Napoleon until now, and I particularly look at how these nationalist theories inspire the actual practical policies of nationalist politicians like Boris Johnson and uh, Donald Trump, as well as others. Um, now, this has led to quite a lot of research on nationalist ideas, but also on how these ideas are themselves constitutive of specific movements, political parties, political events like Brexit, uh, and not just the election of Trump, but also how Trump and other nationalists are interested in changing the functioning of international relations. Because the greatest finding of my research and that of my colleagues so far has been that this group of nationalists that we see in power in many countries around the world today, Bolsonaro, uh, Narendra Modi, uh, Boris Johnson, or Trump, what they want is really to change the basis of politics and international relations so that it responds to their core concept and principle of politics. And that is birthright. Birthright on the basis of identity. I'm born British and therefore I deserve something from Britain that others are crucially excluded from. So birthright and birth inclusion are the key common denominator behind all nationalists. Now, of course, there are many traditions in nationalism. We have the new right, uh, for instance, which is the most uh, significant right now, is that um, to which uh, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump belong to, as well as many other key um, nationalist players around the world today. But anyway, looking at nationalism, as a scholar, has been incredibly important at a time when nationalist politicians are rising to power all over the world, and nationalism is kind of taking over international relations as a key paradigm for how it should operate. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think nationalism has become so, so, so much to the forefront of, of global politics in recent years? Why, why now? Well, on the one hand, because, as and this, is, this has been commented on quite extensively all over the place, academically, but also in public opinion, because they appear to have simple solutions to complex problems. And, and here the simplicity of birthright is particularly attractive. Uh, and this is important, yes, the, the, there is a great deal of attractive simplicity in identitarian politics, huh? uh, particularly the assumption that those of other identities are designed to struggle against uh, us, 
this assumption appears to make a lot of sense to people. But I think another key reason why nationalism is having so much success as a political paradigm today is quite simply that we have been in economic crisis for quite a long time now. Since 2008, mainstream politicians, as nationalists like to call them, it's true that mainstream politicians have failed to address a lot of core economic issues. Um, if we look at the big moments in recent nationalism, for instance, the Brexit referendum, the Trump election, the Bolsonaro election, um, Trump and the Brexiteers were talking about issues that mainstream politicians had not been talking about for quite a long time. Um, Trump, unlike mm. Trump, despite being right wing and despite our own assumptions about Democrats, Unlike Hillary Clinton, it was Trump that was talking about poverty, that was talking about life struggles. This was very close to the lived experience of many Americans um, that, particularly since the financial crisis, have seen their economic lot in life uh, get more and more difficult. Um, likewise, Brexiteers, unlike the Remainers, made a point of speaking of this economic, social, um, and other struggles. I think it's also fair to say that Society has changed a very great deal in the last 30 years. Globalization and a new type of industrialization that is much more roboticized and automated has led to changes not only in the way we work and the loss of jobs, that part is quite obvious, but also changes in society. So, for instance, many industrial workers would have previously defined their own social identity by what they did. I'm not sure that being an Uber driver gives you, shall we say, this proud social identity in the same way. So we find ourselves, and, 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 and you know, by the same logic, entire societies, groups of people are falling apart, you know, friends from the factory are no longer a social unit and with their families and so on and so forth. What I'm trying to say is that communities are also changing. In the face of community social change, colossal economic and difficult, unfair change, um, in the face of mainstream politicians like Hillary Clinton not even mention lived struggles, the struggles of people's lived experience, plus the availability of a simple identitarian birthright explanation as to why there is a problem and what can be done about it are, as a package, extremely attractive politically. But I think it's important to emphasize not only the attractiveness of nationalist ideas, but also the total, shall we say, collapse in the viability of many competing ideas what we might generally call the left of progressives or the center are in total disarray. They're fighting provincial struggles amongst one another. Uh, look at uh, uh, the Labour Party in Britain. They've been locked in provincial, tribal, inter-scene struggles for quite a few years now. They have not been speaking to the country as much as to one another, um, whereas nationalists are ahead in terms of this is an issue that we can at least try to explain and provide an, an alternative for. Now, and of course, I don't much like that alternative, but I do think that discursively it has been much more present and much more apparently viable than those of rivals that are struggling against one another. I think another very good example is Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders. They are, that debate is destroying the Democratic Party and its viability, whereas Trump has been remarkably successful in preserving Republican unity, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and to that point as well, one thing I was going to say, you know, they are, you know, they are appealing to, to the people that are struggling and are perhaps in poverty and, um, and struggling financially. They seem to do that, but do they just see that as the, as the fastest route to success or do they really believe it? 
I think both. So here is where, as a political scientist, I have to admit the limitations of my science and my practice. I cannot go into Boris Johnson's or Trump's or Bolsonaro's heads and tell you how sincerely nationalist they are, how sincerely they believe that those born from other races are responsible for our struggles. Um, I cannot tell you that. However, I can tell you that these two examples are particularly interesting because both Trump and Johnson were far more liberal in the recent past and may well have instrumentally ridden the wave of these ideas, the wave of nationalism, all the way to power instrumentally and might well regret it in the future. With someone like Trump, it, it does very much look like he's flip-flopped his way to the most direct um, route towards the White House throughout his career. You know, it, it's it's clearly something that's been on his agenda for quite some time. Uh, and, and I think he played and toyed with a, with a couple of other areas. Like you say, you know, I think at one point, wasn't he toying with the the Democratic entry for, for the presidency? So yes, it does and, seem and very the much that way. Yes, the libertarian one at one point too. Um, yes, just, of course. Just like, just like much closer to home, uh, Johnson was London's liberal mayor for eight years. We must remember that. And you cannot be mayor of London if you are that ultra-nationalist, considering that, you know, half of London wasn't born in, in here. So, yes, Absolutely. Johnson also had a previous political identity that then he reforged in the case of Brexit. And crucially, what's fascinating about these two examples is that both of them want to preserve both the credit of having been liberals, I am a nice guy, um, and the credit of being hardcore nationalists with their newfound supporters. A very good example is Trump's re constant reassertion that he's basically nice and he's progressive. He uses that word. Um, you know, and, and, and Johnson... <laughs> I'd like to stick him on a lie detector for that and see how that comes out. Well, crucial, chances are that he still actually believes it enough that it will come out as true. Right? Of course. <laughs> Just like Boris Johnson keeps using the language of one nation conservatism, right? The, the 2000s David Cameron idea of a nicer, more social, and more socially sensitive conservatism. Um, he, Johnson is still using that language, but his choices of policies, his choices of cabinet, his choice of the type of Brexit, he wants to speak very, very differently. And crucially, in the last election, I think the discourse we had from I wouldn't even say the Conservative Party. I would say from the current leadership of the Conservative Party was very, very nationalist. Um, just like Trump mm. can well can play now and again with more liberal dimensions, but they have both, and this is vital, they have both cornered themselves into this hardcore nationalist position. And this, this ties quite nicely into part of the reason we want to talk about this today. You know, obviously with everything that's going on with COVID-19 and coronavirus right now, it, it, it's really changing the face of politics completely. Is it quite interesting then to see that the sort of policies we're essentially rolling with as a government now, in a lot of ways, are essentially socialist policies? So Absolutely. Isn't it quite oh, thank you for crazy. bringing this up. Thank you for bringing this up, Matt, because something that has been exasperating me about how we discuss the current crisis is that we are not looking enough at the huge contradictions in policy. As you just mentioned, we have got really hard right governments applying really left policies. We're talking about 1950s socialism. You know, we're going to buy the banks if they fail. We'll, don't worry, we'll save the airlines. We're going to pay a living wage to everyone. This is crazy. I mean, the, the whole 
we're going to pay you to basically stay at home, regardless of your employment status, which is basically what we are we're about to do in Britain and America. This is this is yeah. you know futurist nineteen fifties new left stuff. Um, it's incredible, but this is also this is also possible for nationalists in a way that it is not for traditional Republicans and conservatives, because remember that the focus of nationalism is not necessarily economic prudence, like you would say for traditional conservatives. It's birthright. Of course. It's birthright. Of course. You may have seen that this government and Trump's government are being extremely generous, yeah, giving you 80% of, of your previous wage and so on and so forth. You may want to, to apply to that with someone that isn't British. You will see what happens. In America, for instance. Oh, really? In America, existing provisions apply mostly, depending on the state, but it, especially in the case of freelancers, apply mostly to Americans, not to uh, to migrants. In the UK, um, they do cover migrants when employed. It, it remains unclear. In the case of the self-employed, it will definitely leave out, and this is dramatic, it will leave out a lot of migrants in process, those that are applying for status and so on and so forth, um, and asylum seekers. Asylum seekers are in the most dramatic situation because they're not allowed to work. They obviously cannot work during the lockdown. Um, so what are we expecting them to do? Um, here is where you these politicians are revealing that they can go left. Boris Johnson already went quite left, if you think about it, during the last election, Yeah, economically speaking. He just remains very right-wing in our commonplace assumptions um, econ uh, uh, in terms of identity. And that is because, Matt, and this is very important, nationalism can exist under any umbrella. You can have a social socialist nationalist. Stalin was one. Yeah, You can have a course, new yeah. left nationalist. Um, I think the current president of Mexico is a rather confusing and inconsistent but good example of a bizarre left-wing nationalist. Uh, Venezuela, very good example. Um, China. China is ethno-nationalist at the same time as being partially communist. Yeah, and I've read Xi Jinping's new theory of China, the, you know, the new theory of the Chinese state, and it basically says this is nationalism with socialism for the Chinese context. So this is basically socialism for a nationalist China. So nationalism is much more flexible than traditional politics in that regard. If you expect in traditional politics, it's very confusing. Extremely. And another even more confusing thing is that we're using nationalist assumptions to deal with a virus. So, for instance, closing borders or calling it the Chinese virus or blaming China for it or China blaming America for it. When, amazingly, by definition, this virus, like any virus, does not care about your nationality, does it? Absolutely. So Absolutely. I find it a hilarious like, contradiction to use nationalist assumptions to deal with a virus that cannot see nationalist differences. This this is where this is where I find it fascinating um, trawling the 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 dark depths of the internet and seeing all these conspiracy theories and um, you know China did this and China did that and 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 obviously Trump coming out and saying this is the China virus. Um, I bet he really loved saying that. I bet he really enjoyed that. <laughs> yes, and, and his you know, supporters, his supporters loved it much more, because for his supporters, it absolutely. was a it was a presidential confirmation of their conspiracy theory. But crucially, remember how earlier I mentioned how the core concept of nationalism is birthright. I was born of this identity, therefore I deserve something. And foreigners are it's not their fault; they just want to struggle against me. 
Well, in that regard, it's fascinating, also in the context of fake news in the last few years, that most nationalist politicians have created a story that blames someone else. Let me give you a few examples. Trump is blaming China very aggressively. China is blaming America. Yeah? Even suggesting, um, for instance, Global Times, an ultra-nationalist newspaper that belongs to the Communist Party, suggested that it might well be a failed American biological weapon. Russia, oh, really? Russia, Putin, in a speech, mentioned that this must be an American biological weapon. And, even more hilariously, the president of Brazil says it's a communist conspiracy, which is global communism, <laughs> just you know, broadly, 1960s-style, <laughs> global communist conspiracy. I feel, like, um, I feel like Bolsonaro's just constantly trolling everyone. He just, he just, whatever anyone else says, he'll go in completely the opposite direction just to stand out. Yes, and that's because this crisis is arriving at the worst moment possible in terms of information. Not just fake news, but also the very notion of fact is now distributed politically. What do I mean by this? Well, something is a fact to somebody if the people I support say it. So, for instance, a Trump supporter will believe it from Trump, but will not believe it from me. You see? And therefore, it means that all of these fake news are coexisting as very politically active discourses. And this is quite scary, because essentially, we are blaming a lot of the crisis on nationalist foreign conspiracies. Yeah? Um, yeah. This is very dangerous because it, it means that on the one hand, we forget that nature just does this. It doesn't take the bad will of a communist foreigner or a nationalist foreigner, you know, or China <laughs> for a virus to emerge. Viruses just happen. It's nature, right? Oh, yeah. Just like a, you, you cannot blame a hurricane on your, on your enemies. Um, and on the other hand... This is why I find it... Mm-hmm. I find it really, really interesting to see a couple of these other conspiracies where there's films based on um, these kind of coronavirus outbreaks and then everyone's suddenly sharing clips from these movies like Contagion and there was a Chinese film um, back in the 2000s, people sharing clips from these and saying, oh my God, I mean, I'm no conspiracy theorist, but look at this. And it is literally just science, right? It's just science. Yeah. I mean, the movie Contagion was... Uh, uh... Uh, one of the advisors in the movie was a former colleague of mine at King's College, a renowned um, epidemiologist. Um, I mean, the movie is pretty bog standard scientifically. It basically takes the case of SARS and amplifies it, which is why, surprise, surprise, is exactly what happened. Um, Having said that, the disease (laughs) in the movie is much more severe than coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Much, much more severe. Um, But basically, these approximations are nationalists trying. They, they happen because nationalists are trying to find an identity explanation for this. Let me give you an example. At the beginning of the Italian crisis, um, Salvini basically blamed the Chinese conspiracy and Chinese migration and migration from North Africa um, and f- created such a scandal that Italy immediately closed borders, particularly from China. Then Italy was a little bit humiliated when it turned out that the virus had been brought to Italy by Italians that had been in China. Um, it was not clear that it was Chinese migration, let alone migration from North Africa, right? Um, and so in this regard, it's very difficult. You, you can see here the interaction between bad ideas and bad interpretations of what's happening, in this case, nationalist, identitarian explanations for the virus. The virus is here because foreigners brought it because they're trying to destroy us, um, versus... The science, where 
the science says that the virus does not care who you are and the virus will continue expanding unless we take stern measures. And finally, the, 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 the really dramatic political dimension of this, the one that I think is the most worrisome in the short term, is the fact that some politicians are refusing to take action because they believe in the political nature of the virus. Uh, Bolsonaro mm. refuses to take action um, in Brazil to the point that even uh, state governors from his own party are rebelling against him because people are dying. I saw this on the news yesterday. He was out having barbecues in the street yeah. somewhere, whereas <laughs> where, where the governors of, of Sao Paulo and Rio were essentially shutting down, yes. completely shutting down against his will. It's yes. So you see there, if you're a loyal supporter, you do what he says. If not, you're, you know, you're a communist conspirator. Um, the same with Trump, who initially basically tried to pretend that nothing was happening until he absolutely had to. In the same way, although less dramatic, um, our government initially played out a very interesting nationalist assumption, which is the survival of the fittest. I think Britain was slow to respond to this crisis in European terms, mostly because many people in the cabinet do actually believe that the weak or the poor deserve to be safe, that this is nature. And that's a very, very, very sad mm. and difficult politicization of this crisis. This is very scary. Um, uh, yet another politicization of this, I suppose, is Mexico, where the government is, is refusing to do anything because, you know, it's, it's an American conspiracy. Uh, th there's going to be a terrible price to pay for these political excuses and political alignments to something that is in many ways one of the least political things that could be is a virus it cannot think <laughs> <laughs> i mean that sort of takes us on nicely to to what's happening over in hungary at the moment i mean talking about people politicizing this and, and using this for their own gain i mean victor orban has really Step things up a couple of notches in over in Hungary, hasn't he? It's yes, just yes, yes, so crazy what, many, what's happening there. Many countries are enacting emergency measures, obviously, um, and these include suspensions of many liberties. So, for instance, in Italy, the police being able to tell my parents that they need to go home um, is important, unfortunately. Um, having said that, in many countries, the debate has arisen of first a, sun, a sunset clause for these emergency measures. A sunset clause is when uh, the law itself has a suicide clause. It means that these measures will run out on their own and become cancelled in six months, for instance. Yeah, uh, In the British Parliament, the government wanted to have unlimited powers that it would decide when to finish them, but Parliament won with an amendment that means that they need to re-seek approval from Parliament every six months. This is a limitation of these extra powers being given to government. In Hungary, what has happened, however is that the emergency measures also carry emergency political measures. So, for instance, unpatriotic messaging, uh, i.e. anti-Orban messaging, will become illegal. Um, a lot of civil freedoms are suspended. Local elections will be suspended. In many ways, Hungary has taken a huge step towards full-fledged dictatorship, using the coronavirus crisis as an excuse. This is to be expected. This also happens in wars. Very often a war can show the best of a country or can also essentially turn it into an emergency dictatorship that then remains. You see, given lots of special powers to politicians, it's a very dangerous thing. It has to happen by consent and it has to have a mechanism for, for permanent consent, but also self-destruction. Let me give you a very good example. The war cabinet in Britain during World War II 
During World War II, Matt, we were not a democracy. All of our parties banded together into a wartime coalition, the war cabinet, that had absolute total power. Yeah? Now, because that war cabinet depended on consent of all the parties, as soon as the war ended, the other parties left and there had to be an election. What Orban has yeah. done is given himself these powers, but there is no sunset clause in the powers. He controls parliament, so it's unlikely that parliament will revoke them. And crucially, the emergency measures include the capacity to silence his opponents. And this is very, very dangerous and very extreme. To be expected in the case of Orban, though, because amongst Euro European democracies, that was the most extreme nationalist and the one that was closest to achieving dictatorship, essentially. And, and he's wanted to do this for quite some time anyway, right? It, this has been yeah. his his kind of dream, <laughs> his, his dream agenda. So it's no surprise to anyone that he's... Well, I mean, it's still surprising that he's done it, but no surprise that he would at least try to do it. Yes, I mean, and, and, and that's exactly what happened, Matt. As you say, he has packaged two or three measures that he has wanted desperately for three years, particularly the capacity to be able to censor the press um, and change and essentially give himself the right to move around elections and the terms of elections uh, and wrapped it around in coronavirus measures. Because, I mean, to be honest, it's true that we need emergency legislation to give more money to, to the healthcare. Uh, system, right? We need to provide for healthcare yes. workers and we need to shut the rest of us at home, even if we don't like it, you know, because it is fair enough to suppress my right to go for a walk to keep everyone else safe. That is important on a temporary basis. Having I'm quite enjoying that, it, to be honest. I, me too, me too. <laughs> I, I, I think there's something to be said for, you know, all the extroverts out there. Maybe they need to learn to be like me for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really enjoying familiarising myself with my pyjamas again. It's fantastic. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And working at home is actually quite delightful <laughs> and saves a lot of time. Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> as long as there's no distractions around. Quite, quite, quite. And, and I mean, working at home for many of us, and this also has a political angle, is showing the limitations of being able to work at home, is showing the limitations of the infrastructure, but also the limitations of being alone. And I mean being alone politically, mm. socially, but also working. So in an office, office workers discipline each other without meaning to, because James is working, I will feel ashamed not to work as much as James, so guess what, I'm working a little bit harder, right? So we all achieve more by working together as a social group, whether it's physically together or not. For many people, learning to work at a distance has actually been um, a difficult struggle with self-disciplining. Self-disciplining, I know that I mean, you know, get work done or not. I mean self-disciplining in terms of having healthy routines, making it a livable way of working. And yeah. politically speaking, this is, this is what explains why this is such an opportunity for um, extreme politicians to take over. Because the, the state of exception, uh, just like in our working lives, provides the excuse, but also the political vacuum to be filled. You see? Just like working at home, you might yes. find it difficult to discipline yourself into getting to work at 9am, right? Because, you know, your desk is next to your bed, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, um, and Very handy. Exactly, because you don't have the, the, the contextual pressure of everyone else. Um, and, and just, yeah. you know, the fact that you're working in an office and you're sharing work and is a, is a joint uh, enterprise, um, this is also happening in politics. And going to the final big point as to the impact of nationalism on coronavirus, I think the biggest impact that nationalism is having on the coronavirus COVID-19 crisis is not necessarily Viktor Orban's dramatic move towards dictatorship or Britain's slowness in responding to this crisis or Trump's attempt to deny it and then embrace it. 
uh, or Bolsonaro denying that it even exists, I think the most dramatic thing about it is that nationalists have succeeded in breaking up the international system to the point that we still do not have a global level response to this. We do not. And this is crazy. In 2008, within weeks, Gordon Brown had been able to push, lobby for, and persuade global leaders um, to enact a joint response, a G20, a European Union, uh, IMF, and World Bank response to the 2008 financial crash. Uh, whereas here, we're nowhere near a global response. Um, and this, this is there is a direct reason for this. I mean, uh, Xi, um, Putin, Modi, Trump, and Boris Johnson are all on the record speaking against the very concept of global governance. Um, and this a pandemic is exactly when we need global governance. Do you, do you see this current situation as potentially the final final nail in the coffin for for globalism generally? I mean, it, it's it's certainly been heading towards a more nationalist agenda politically. M- most countries have been. It, it certainly seems that way. Do do you think? Yeah, could this be the end of globalism as we know it? Is there is there a new form of uh, of politics waiting in the wings to to launch onto our into our world or how, how do you see this panning out this is for the time being the end of global and globalist politics particularly issues like global governance joint responses to economic uh, pandemic or other types of crises essentially countries working together rather than against one another um, that's not to say that this is permanent for the time being the institutions themselves created after world war ii the institutions of international relations and, and governance um, still exist. The WHO, the United Nations, and so on and so forth. But these are institutions that do not have power in and of themselves. They have power when the member states let them have power. You see? In 2008, yeah. we gave... Uh, the IMF does not have its own money, for instance. It has to be, it has to be put in by the richest countries. Yeah? So the, the big bailouts of 2008 were paid for by Britain, France, America, and other big states, right? China as well. Um, China put in a lot of money into those. Um, and, and that's important because this time around we are nowhere near being able to do that. So having said that, the institutions still remain. Um, but as long as these leaders are in power, they don't want these institutions to have power. I mean, Trump has basically been calling the WHO a Chinese slave and China has been calling WHO an, an American puppet and so on and so forth. Both of them are essentially delegitimizing the one international agency that could actually help coordinate international efforts. And instead, what we're seeing is a free-for-all. I mean, did, did you see the news of Trump trying to buy out a German company that was trying to develop a vaccine? What he was trying to oh do God, yeah. was not just buy out the company. That's not outrageous. The outrageous part is that he wanted to buy the vaccine so that only Americans would have it. This is mad. In this regard, it, it, as long as these politicians... It's insane. Yeah. As long as these politicians are in power we will not be able to have a global response. If these politicians remain in power for a long time, they will continue destroying the international institutions that make international responses possible. In time, the the, the proverbial final nail in the coffin of globalism will be put in. Not yet. That final nail, I think, awaits the moment when we destroy these institutions. The day, for instance, Trump leaves the UN. Um, And you think that's coming? Not necessarily leaving the UN formally, but maybe informally it is already kind of doing so. Institutional change is much harder to reverse, like Brexit. 
us leaving the European Union made it much more difficult for us to work in unison with our European partners on the COVID crisis. And if we had left 10 years ago, the European Union, the institutional separation would be so complete that it would have been even harder than it is now. I think it's important to highlight that we are collaborating with Europe um, on the response to the crisis, but only to a very limited extent. Uh, and I, I'm angry about this. I'm angry about this because um, Italy began this crisis weeks before everyone else, a joint effort to contain the crisis to Milan, essentially. Milan, Pavia, and the, the few towns in the north of Italy, helped by all of Europe, yeah, would have contained the crisis to these towns or maybe to a few other towns. Instead, each country is now looking after itself and is not doing it as well as it could in as it would be able to in conjunction with many other states. How, you know, let's say this had happened 10 years ago, for example. Uh, my, my, you know, my dates are probably a little bit off, but let's say the likes of Obama were still in power or perhaps even David Cameron to a certain extent and, and some of the more, well, the less nationalist leaders within all these countries. Do you think, the pandemic and the response to it would have would have played out very differently. Yes. Or do you think because because of the shock of the whole thing, it would have ended up becoming this kind of nationalist? We must deal with this ourselves and and then see what happens. Kind of situation. It would have been very different, and we know that for a fact because we did have small, smaller, but more lethal in some cases pandemic experiences before this one. Um, Ebola is a very good example. It was a global effort to contain it in West Africa and, and end it, essentially end it. You know, we sent an aircraft carrier and thousands of medical personnel to, to, to Ghana and West Africa for this. Um, likewise with uh, the pig flu and, of course, SARS. Yes. Um, SARS is an interesting example because SARS also involved China. And in the case of SARS, China lied for many weeks about the crisis. Um, and because China lied, the crisis became a massive pandemic in, in China and in East Asia, but did not spread around the world as fast as it could have done. It did not spread around the world as fast as it could have done because international action was militant. Um, have you been recently to an airport in Japan or Korea or China? I haven't. They still have the little gates that test your temperature from the SARS outbreak. That's how, that's how concerned they were. Do they really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, many airports still have them. Uh, of course, they're useful again now, right? Um, and that's yeah, why that's also why China and Japan were ahead of us in something really basic, laser thermometers. Have you seen the pictures of when they do testing in China, they shine this little light on your forehead? That's a thermometer. We don't have the, a... the light. The, the light that looks a bit like the Terminator dot. Yes, exactly. When he's yes. about to... Yeah. Perfect, yes. Yeah. I have are, seen that. Do, do, that's an entire... Um, a generation of non-touch, non-contact thermometers that was developed in the in the aftermath of the SARS crisis. But anyway, the, the response to the SARS crisis was fairly global. Um, I, I mean, you you asked me about how had this happened in the era of Obama and Cameron. We know that Obama and Cameron mm. would have responded together to this. There were plans. WHO had not been um, as defunded at the international level as now. I also think that if it had played out like the pig flu or um, SARS, we would have had at least the responses that we had to those, if that makes sense. 
And those were yeah. more internationally coordinated than responses we have had to COVID-19. That's why do, do you is, think that's why I can assert so strongly that the presence of nationalists in power has made this crisis far, far, far worse, and has made it worse because of their total unwillingness to collaborate with other countries. Essentially, do, do you think that it's a case of um, other nations saying, "Actually, we, we don't want to, we don't want to collaborate with Trump on this because we don't, we don't trust him, or we don't, you know." we don't think he's up to the task or, or whatever it is, or do you think it's the other way around? Do you think it's, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm generalising this quite a lot, obviously, just to make it Trump and everyone else, uh-huh. but it does seem like that a lot of the time. Um, you know, is it that Trump doesn't want to collaborate or is it that people don't want to tra- collaborate, collaborate with Trump, do you think? I think no one wants to collaborate with anyone. That's the tragedy here. Uh, many countries are essentially working on the assumption that they should deal with it on their own. Um, they are not getting help. I mean, Italy, for instance, has had precious little help from the EU or from Germany or other countries. They have had a lot less cases and a less dramatic lockdown. Um, and that's supposed to be in the context of European brotherhood, right? Total hypocrites. Yes. Um, we have had a lot less help from Europe than we would have done in, in previous times. We have given a lot less help, if any. Um, interestingly, it is China, and we don't know how symbolic or real this is, that is sending a lot of help to other countries. Most other countries are doing this on their own. And here, really, the assumption is not that it's Trump against everyone else, it's that it's everyone against everyone. Again, Mm. let me tell you, I think this is ridiculous considering that the virus does not make those distinctions. Of course. If the virus were an actual war enemy, it is fundamentally united. We are fundamentally disunited against it. It will keep getting us. It, it, we will. We might be able to wipe it out from the country, but as soon as someone from another country that did not take the same action arrives, maybe is a carrier of the virus, we will have another outbreak. Um, I, I'm also sad and scared in advance of what will happen when we do develop vaccinations. Are we going to use these vaccinations in a nationalist way, only give them to our people? I don't know. This is worrisome. That was that was one of the most stark scenes from you know I hate to take this into into Hollywood but what one of the one of the starkest scenes from the film Contagion was where they were essentially you know handing out vaccines by lottery yeah um, based on the day you were born I mean the way the way the world is at the moment that doesn't seem like science fiction anymore that seems like something that could actually happen I, I remember watching that and thinking. I would not be surprised if I saw this on the news somewhere that this was actually happening. It's going to be worse. In the movie, the WHO administers the vaccine and then each country has a lottery for who should get it first, right? But the vaccine is being is going yeah. to every country in the movie. In the current situation, I think what is going to happen is that for a few months, if a nationalist country is the first one to develop the vaccine, so for instance, Trump gets his hands on it first, they will keep it to themselves for a while. I'm concerned about that. And then sell it for some extortionate price to the rest of the world. Yeah. I mean, if Trump was trying to buy it for exclusively for Americans, it wouldn't surprise me if that's exactly what he did. He said, if you want it, you're going to pay us a fortune, particularly China. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a terrible situation to be in because, I mean, in, in, in contagion, the problem was not who has the vaccine and who doesn't. is producing enough vaccine for the entire population. You see? Here, yeah. it might well be a yeah. case of, you get vaccinated if you have the right passport. 
Probably a blue one, right? Yeah. <laughs> and those of us that have not been patriotic enough to replace our passports yet may be, may be left to wait, Matt. <laughs> oh, see, see, I, I was I was holding off for as long as humanly possible before I have to get a blue passport myself. Not that I'm biased and, and not that I voted a certain way or anything, but, you know, I've got no interest in having a blue passport. I do have an interest in potentially having a vaccine, so maybe I need to rethink my tactics <laughs> a little bit here. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with blue passports. They're pretty. Having said that, the EU did not, yeah. did not compel us to change them to red. <laughs> you know, it was, a bit of a, it was a bit of a Brexiteer myth up there with EU regulation on cabbage and bananas and things like that. <laughs> it's, it sounds, like a, uh, sounds very much like a Dominic Cummings-led uh, initiative, um, uh, almost like the physical equivalent of a soundbite. Yes, maybe, maybe. I, I, well, these symbols matter in nationalist politics, you see. Yeah. And that's why they matter more than whether they're true or not. You see, because the arrival of red yeah. passports marked the arrival of the EU in Britain, for many people, the return of the blue passport, even though it's not actually because of the EU that it is not blue or it will be blue, is symbolically important because it will mark um, our departure from the EU. I mean, moving on to, and I, and I, I hate talking about Brexit these days because I'm sick to the back teeth with it, but I think it's important in this context how... How does everything that's happening now affect Brexit? Does it affect Brexit? Yes, of course. And and this is a vital question because this crisis is essentially going to take at least six months out of any political or legislative schedule. Right? That's pretty simple. Um, That's the six months we were counting on to negotiate a post-Brexit agreement with Europe. I'm a little bit scared Mm. about this because the government's current policy is that if by June we do not have an agreement with Europe, then we're exiting with no deal, WTO terms. Yes. I don't think in the current circumstances, and concern, I mean, I, I, that's not even because politicians don't want to. I think politicians are too busy dealing with this COVID-19 nightmare to deal with anything else. I really can't imagine that all the contact group meetings on Brexit are going to happen unproblematically, you know, over Zoom, um, and we'll be able to leave in June. As announced, and this is scary for two reasons. On the one hand, we might have to postpone leaving the EU properly or extend the transition period, which is going to really, really piss off Brexit supporters who were desperate to have an immediate Brexit and who won the election after all. Um, Or we have a really brutal no-deal Brexit, quite simply because we're running too late in the negotiations. Both options are pretty bad. Well, I guess that that they're magnified as even worse given the the financial situation that yes we're all going to be in after this yeah. you know we we we're then this we really are this sort of island nation out on our own by that point and and our economy is going to be in in a serious amount of trouble at least the EU have the collective of the member states to look after each other we're kind of out on a limb at that point right well yes and no so on the one hand Financially, we would not be out on a, on a limb. We can borrow money. As we, I mean, as the UK as a state can borrow money as cheaply as the EU. So at least for the time being, we have as much access to cash for the government to spend as we want to. We are not in the situation of uh, smaller, less creditworthy countries, say, even the creditworthy ones that are smaller, like Austria, that it, there's only so much you can borrow in the current situation. That's not a problem for us. Uh, and that's not necessarily the kind of help we would need from the EU if we were still members. I think the kind of help we would need from the EU is much more infrastructural, 
uh, healthcare um, and also reconstruction projects after COVID-19. I think after this disease, there's going to be a need for a colossal New Deal style uh, economic stimulation project, you know, multi-year massive investment. Um, and I don't know if Brexit Britain will be able to do that as, uh, as we have been doing for the last 60 years, 50 years in the EU. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we even know how to do it. Um, one of the key reasons mm. why leaving the EU is difficult is, has nothing to do with whether you believe that we should or should not leave the EU. It's because we have been in the EU for quite a long time. So, for instance, we don't know how to do trade deals independently because we haven't done them in, in a long time, right? We know how to do them as part of the EU. Um, so that will be difficult quite literally because of the, you know, the statesmanship experience is not up to the task, right? Not, not because of any neglect, but because we didn't need it, you see? I mean, if you set yourself up as a farmer, you're going to have a severe deficit of skills in farming, right, Matt? Of course. Not because you mean badly or because you've got the wrong politics. It's quite simply because you haven't been a farmer before. So absolutely. in that regard, the, yep. the new challenges posed by coronavirus are a very good demonstration why big organizations are helpful. Hmm. It's going to be an interesting six to 12 months. Maybe not good interesting either, just interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think the best part of this crisis is, the, is now. <laughs> at least we're at home, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think the difficulty is I mean, you afterwards. know. <laughs> oh, God, don't, don't. It's not even worth thinking. Well, do you know what? It, it's a funny one because it's actually almost not even worth second guessing at this point because we know, we know it's going to be bad. Whichever way you look at it, we know things aren't going to be fantastic. It's not, you know, the world and the way people operate and everything will have changed, perhaps unrecognisably in a, in, a, in a lot of ways. But there is no point working yourself up about what might be or might not be. Um, I think we've just got to knuckle down and 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 That's keep right. an eye on keep an eye on the situation and, and hope for the best. I right? think there will be one very positive outcome from this at the international level regardless of nationalists, and that is healthcare. I think a lot of people have not appreciated the need for nurses and healthcare at a global, national level in the way that we do now. Yes. I mean, there is almost no reason, for instance, even if you did believe that we should not have national social healthcare, it should all be private. Private healthcare cannot structurally deal with this. You need a national response, you see? I think the coronavirus well, that will become in and of itself an argument for investing in our healthcare systems. There was an interesting, yeah, interesting thing I saw in the news the other day as well, that, that suddenly a lot of, you know, we, we were speaking before about how perhaps people who aren't born in, you know, back to the whole nationalism argument in general, people that weren't born in a certain country not being treated quite as well, even during this time as 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 people who, who were. It's interesting to hear that suddenly now all these doctors and nurses that aren't born in the UK have suddenly been asked back and having their visas extended. And, yeah. you know, at a time like this, when, when people do start to realize, you know, really how important these people are and that it's not about where you're from and it's not about your nationality. It's about the service that, that yeah. you can provide and whether you're, whether you're talented enough to, to save a life essentially. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there has never been a time to be more beloved in this country as a European nurse than now. And there are more than a hundred thousand European nurses in the NHS. 
But I think what I wanted to emphasize the most was the need for investment into large-scale healthcare systems. I, I think that there has been a lot of political focus on the NHS just needing to be preserved, but I think the, the focus is going to shift to preventative work, social care. Social care is glaring by its absence right now, um, you know, and simply better and better provided for healthcare. I think the argument for investing in NHS is going to be much greater after this and respecting it and paying for it better. So, for instance, cutting, cut, cutting the wages of nurses will not be acceptable after this because a lot of people would have experienced the hard work of nursing firsthand during this crisis. Yes. Yeah. Do, do you think on the NHS side of things, is there any way that after this, because the coffers are, coffers are empty to a certain extent, does that... I mean, I really hope this doesn't happen, obviously, but does that open up a potential can of worms in terms of private business being able to come in and say, well, actually, now this is our, this is our opportunity to, to help, to, in inverted commas, help you guys out and, and, and throw money at the situation? And is that the start of privatisation? It could be. It very much depends on the political choices we make after this. But, but considering the love that has been shown to the NHS... You know, the, you might remember the other day, all of London turning up to their windows to clap. It was a few days yes. ago. Yes, it was a beautiful moment. It was, it really was. And I think it was quite simply a moment of recognition. I don't think that privatising the NHS will be a popular proposition after COVID-19. No. And I don't think they will try. Um, and quite the opposite, if, if there was such a political proposal, it will get cut to pieces, particularly because... Private healthcare does not have the infrastructure, information, um, and other s structures necessary to cope with it at the national level. Because it's not about a, a, you see, pandemics are special in that it's not good enough to take care of just you. You can be selfish and heal yeah. yourself. The problem is everyone else. You, even if you are a great believer in private healthcare, you need everyone else to be healed too. You see, or be safe. And so by Otherwise, the whole house of cards falls down. Exactly. Yeah. So by definition, even if you're a believer in private healthcare, you're going to feel much more invested in national healthcare, public healthcare now. You see? Yeah. The case, Absolutely. I don't think, will, will be made at all. Quite the opposite. I think this might, for instance, help the case of, for social healthcare in the US. I mean, I, I, I've, been, I've been pretty surprised by the way that um, spin has been used to tell certain stories in the press and, and in the in the polit political agenda recently. Uh, and so the cynic in me almost thinks that you know the people that want this to happen, uh, you know the big corporations or or perhaps the advisors and politicians that are attached to the big corporations will find a way of framing this that that, that the public can buy into, where they think actually you know if, if it's framed as you know us having no money after the coronavirus outbreak and suddenly this knight in shining armour that's a big pharma corporation from the US coming in and saying we're going to pump a load of money into your NHS but obviously there's a cost in the background. I, I just worry about how they might frame that sort of situation. Yeah, that is a fair, fair issue to worry about and I think the feasibility of that move will be almost entirely dependent on how bad the crisis plays out in the US. If they have more debt yeah. than we do, that will kind of make the opposite case for nationalization of healthcare in the US. If they do better, however, that might put the case forward. Yeah. Um, I think a lot depends on the choices of our politicians. I don't think the current government, for instance, is particularly desperate to privatize the NHS. Um, you know, the, the, in, the, in the election, their manifesto 
spoke of protecting it and reinforcing it and investing in it, right? So even though we might expect them to be advocates of privatization, I don't think that's going to be top of their agenda. I do think, however, that we might well enter an era of austerity after this, exactly because, as you said, we, we will have spent a colossal amount of money on essentially paying our way out of the crisis. I mean, as with after the last huge, and, and I'm not talking about the recession, you know, after the Second World War, when, you know, we are essentially in a wartime footing at the moment, right? So th- the only thing comparable in our lifetimes, well, not our lifetimes, but uh, in our, it's certainly in, in this generation or the last is, is probably the Second World War. And <laughs> after that, very quickly, we, we, we sort of started building what is now the kind of more welfare state and looking after people and um, uh, socialist focused policies. Do, do you think that there's potentially a way where, where that might be the case again, you know, after a disaster like this and after something rocking the economy and rocking the country so heavily, is that, is that door then wide open for for a socialist government to come in and say, actually, we've, we've had a trial run at this now, uh, You've all seen that it works. Why don't Why don't you let us in officially to come and do it? Yeah, I, I think that's already happening. I mean, think that uh, our Conservative government is burning more money than any government left or right since 1945, right now. Um, it's already happening. And it might not even need to be a, a socialist proper that does it. It might well be even nationalists that do it in order to remain in yeah. power. I really think so. Just like World War II, as you said. And it might well be the case that in order to remain in power and retain legitimacy, our current government decides that it, instead of going on an austerity drive, is going to do, like you said, post-World War II, um, a Marshall Plan, a new deal to recover the, the national economy. That might well be the case. I guess only time will tell at this stage. Yeah. I, I mean, a lot will depend as well on... And I, I think the, the pandemic itself is... We are dramatising it a lot. We, we just compared it to World War II, Yes, it is like World War II in that the response to it has to be a unified national effort, but it is not as bad as World War II in other regards. My, my father is very old, um, and he remembers outbreaks of pneumonia, <laughs> you know, uh, big diseases from the old world that we discount in, in our ultra-vaccinated society of today, you see? So, yeah. you know, he's very bored in the lockdown, but... He's not as scared of this as, as we are, I, I don't think, you know, because he remembers outbreaks of typhoid, literally entire cities shitting themselves to death. So, you know, this is not as bad compared to that, <laughs> right? <laughs> let's, let's hope that doesn't happen again. I mean, that would be... He lost his grandma to tuberculosis. Like... Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, COVID-19 to him is just not that dramatic, even though he's in the at-risk population. I think many we are now... A, we are now the third generation down that we are so used to having not suffering from pandemics that we have forgotten, shall we say, our cultural history of pandemics being a fairly normal part of life. The world has been dealing with large-scale pandemics and how to deal with them, how to isolate people for a very long time. So, for instance, Rome in, in the pandemic in the 1300s, not in Rome, in Avignon, where the papacy was based, they had isolation, like we do now, in the plague. Hmm. They would draw crosses on, on the doors of people that were not allowed to leave, and then you, you know, you'd get beaten up if you tried to leave your house, sort of thing. Um, 
So it feels new to us and extraordinary, but it's not that extraordinary and that dramatic in the greater historical context. Think that there was a polio outbreak in the 1950s when thousands and hundreds of thousands of children around the world lost their capacity to walk. Mm. And that was normal. There was a polio outbreak every 20 years or so. You know, FDR, Roosevelt, lost the use of his legs in the previous polio outbreak in the 1920s. It's interesting you talk about the way the plague was dealt with all those many years ago and some of the noises coming out of Germany at the moment uh, in terms of people having their kind of I've had the I've had COVID-19 cards um, and and I've heard a lot of people saying recently that's the way that well you know it's just it's tittle-tattle it's nothing official but it's tittle-tattle you know people talking about how that might be the way forward for us as well and you know where we get these sort of i've i've had it so i'm all right yeah, I'm, I'm immune kind of thing yes i, I think we're definitely going yeah. there um so looking yeah. at so italy now is ahead of many other states and they are starting to debate how how to draw down because you can't just end the lockdown you have to draw it down gradually right and the debate as you say mm-hmm. is centering on large-scale testing and particularly letting out immediately everyone that has has it has had it and has survived it because they're immune, right? Um, and then vaccinations when available to make the rest of the population immune, uh, which means that many of us could well find ourselves in isolation for much longer than we expect. Um, just like in the plague, if you had not survived it, you would not really be allowed out. Um, maybe to finish off, we could have a pretty symbol <laughs> um, as an anecdote. I recently read and was reminded by a friend that in the 1330s plague outbreak in London, the Tower of, the Tower of London drawbridge was risen, was, uh, was closed. Uh, and recently, apparently, that has been done again, <laughs> obviously because the Tower of London <laughs> is closed. But I love the symbol that in our late modern, you know, in postmodernity, we have a plague and we still lift <laughs> the drawbridge on Tower Bridge, <laughs> uh, uh, on, uh, uh, on the Tower of London. I love that. Pablo, thank you so much for for joining. It's been amazing to speak with you as always and and to hear your your insight onto everything. I don't know if there's any last words you want to add or um, anything you're working on at the moment that you want to plug. Uh, not at all. If you are in, in if you're desperate <laughs> from, for some hardcore academic reading um, during your lockdown, maybe you will want to buy my book. Recently came out with IB Tories, The Road, the Road to Vietnam. It discusses in extreme detail how French diplomacy persuaded America that Vietnam was really an American problem. Um, but otherwise, thank you so much for having me, Matt. And I hope that we'll be c- continue to be able to do Dismantle Talks in this format. And I hope it goes well. Thank you very much. Indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll have to look at doing a uh, an online webinar soon. We've got lots mm-hmm. of Dismantle webinars coming up. Um, and for, for you listening as well, head over to dismantle.co.uk uh, and you'll be able to see what events and, and what webinars we have coming up. And, and obviously, check out any future podcasts we have coming up on the likes of Spotify, Apple and Acast too. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.